welcome back to the program. We're getting into brisk bulls and bears right now. Bulls and bears, which is obviously the public markets. We've got a special guest on the program, Steve Wallach, who's been with us for the last two segments and has an awful lot to say. And it's really great to tap into people's experience. I talk about it all the time. And I've got the, uh, the rare experience to, uh, to have been there from the very beginning when uh, Steve's company, uh, who's the CEO of Longevity? Uh, Steve's company went from a private company that was doing, you know, a nice piece of business to all of a sudden making a decision to becoming a public company. And I'd want to ask about that experience and those early perceptions and misconceptions and what he's learned along this path. Because many of you are asking me what it takes to become public, and many of you are writing emails that say, "I want to become public." Uh, and I think. You need to understand what becoming public means before you can make that decision. So let's bring Steve back on to the program. Steve, uh, this should be an interesting topic for you. We met uh, in 2011 when we came together, um, and uh, all of a sudden, Longevity, the company you founded, uh, uh, became a public company. Uh, tell me why and what went into the decision in those, in those early days before you had any experience, and why did you want to become public, and what did you think it would do for longevity? Sure. I had always had an interest in business, as I had mentioned earlier. Always had been interested in terms of uh, the stock markets and things like that. But growing up, I, I grew up in the Northwest uh, from my teens to early 20s and, and beyond, and pretty much everybody, it seemed like, that I knew either worked for one of the, the tech companies or their parents did. And it was kind of, uh, well, it was long before the dot-coms. And people were, were involved and invested in terms of stock, stock options. And it became part of the, the culture of the Northwest around, uh, it was Microsoft, it was Tektronics, it was uh, Intel, were all big in the, the Northwest. And obviously, Apple and Dell were growing up at, at those same times. And so, you know, I was familiar with it from that standpoint. Obviously, in the early 2000s, dot-coms and, and people involved, being involved for ownership and, and stock and equity became a, a really common practice and, and desirable by so many people. And so it was my goal to involve people in the direct selling space around employees and distributors to, to provide a, a vehicle for them to also participate in ownership in the company that we're all building together. Ah, that's a really, really admirable uh, position, I think. And I think that uh, that's, that's probably something most people don't think about. So I think you came into public markets knowing what direct selling was all about and say, hey, is there a way that could get blended together and give kind of a more... Uh, uh, more togetherness in terms of ownership. So that that's a really, really cool thing. Uh, so all of a sudden, you're about to become public or become public. What do you think in terms of changes, private, now public, what do you think the most difficult part of that is? Um, you know, the, the biggest uh, thing you're not prepared for as an entrepreneur probably is all of the um, just systems that are in place around accounting and 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 um, just the, the processes of accountability, outside auditors and things like that, and, and you have to, to think through all the systems and and it, it's just a foreign language to most entrepreneurs, and so it, it's something that most people aren't really expecting. And, and you see, you know, I brought up Richard Branson, 
earlier and you you watch people like Elon Musk and you watch other people that are in and out of public uh, arenas because of that exact thing as entrepreneurs and ultimately you wind up realizing where the benefits are of being public. And what do you think that biggest benefit is? Why, If you're going to become public, what's the number one reason why you would? You know, I think the biggest reason for most people that that they should be interested in being public and consider is expanding the business. And so it gives you access to capital to grow a business in ways that maybe you wouldn't otherwise. And so if you're utilizing that to, to grow your business, to get to a place you couldn't as a private business, then that's something to consider. It's sort of like having a college education. I was told a long time ago, if you can't get the education you're looking for, except for in college, then you go to college. And so it's the same with growing a business. If you can grow a business in ways that you want to grow it, that you couldn't without being public, then it's a great reason to be public. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense, actually. And, and that certainly, I think, is the big advantage to being public. Um, and let's uh, you might have touched on it a little, but I think you've always said, and I've heard you say this uh, in, uh, in other interviews, that uh, third party uh, validation that has to take place, right? The SEC you have to cooperate with, or maybe uh, um, you know all of the tax rules you have to uh, follow with, the NASDAQ and its rules that you have to follow with as a NASDAQ company. There's all those rules, but you also said that having that accountability you think maybe is a wonderful oversight committee uh, once I guess you own it. So talk about that a little bit, because I've heard you speak about that before. Absolutely. I think being public is probably the best accountability partner you could have. And so again, it's like learning a foreign language. It's, you have to become very, very familiar with accounting and the accounting principles and things that are associated with being public at this level. But um, you know, that's something that most entrepreneurs don't know and have to learn along the way. But um, uh, the accountability aspect is, is amazing, and, but it's also a lot of work. A uh, ton of work. You know, um, a, a few weeks back or so, uh, an announcement was made that um, the company Longevity, YGYI, was considering um, uh, the potential divestiture of one of, its, uh, one of its divisions from the public markets to the private sector. Tell me what it went into um, making a decision, even, even thinking about evaluating something like that, like a divestiture, and why. Sure, and you know, in growing the business the way we've grown, and you have been a, a big part of the development of how this is, has evolved and grown. Each of these three sub-segments or segments of Longevity International are separate, and they're separate business units. And the, the reason that we've always done that, I think, is that there's always been that possibility of finding value by divesting different things. And so you're growing an entity and, and a business, and then you have the, the options. Having options is always great. And so in considering the divestiture, you know, it, you're always looking to find ways to create value for shareholders as a, public, a publicly traded company. And so that's what we're doing with that possible divestiture is evaluating the possibility of creating unrealized uh, value for shareholders. You know, that's, that's something that uh, I think a lot of people miss. At the end of the day, we, and as a public company, that board of directors, you're, you know, public uh, executives are accountable for. And at the end of the day, we work for the shareholders. And everyone says CEO or the board doesn't have a boss. And that is so untrue. <laughs> There's an awful lot of bosses out there to be accountable when you're part of a public entity, isn't there? 
Absolutely. So uh, in this uh, divestiture analysis, it's really becomes down to a uh, like a like the last segment, right? A buyer bail. You know, people don't necessarily understand that. So uh, it, there's an awful lot of consideration into making a decision, and then um, you know what goes into a decision like that, and and uh, you know what is the process like, Steve? Well, it's a thorough process of evaluation, one internal but also with outside uh, evaluations of third parties, evaluating fairness and things in all directions. Uh, there's uh, attorneys and accountants that also are involved to be sure that the process is done properly. And then ultimately it comes down to the owners of the company, of the business, all shareholders get to, uh, to have a say. Yeah, and I think that's probably one of the things that make public companies so cool. And, and uh, it's the reason why stock markets exist, in my mind. At the end of the day, public companies, with all the oversight, I mean, just listening to this segment and all the uh, third-party validation, there's a reason why stock markets like the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange exist. And where really most investment in the world take place, really, percentages of portfolios are investments in public companies. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, public, publicly traded companies give the, the public the opportunity to own a piece of the rock as well, just like I was talking about earlier in terms of employees and, and distributors having the opportunity to participate in ownership of our company as we build it also. You know, I want to get back to that divestiture piece and just make it clear to our listening audience. That is not a definitive agreement. It's just in an evaluation stage. Um, but one of the things that's really, really interesting that you brought up is, is obviously at the end of the day, will it deliver better value to shareholders? And that's one of the key components that goes into any decision of, of selling off any asset at the end of the day. Will the company give better value to shareholders? So it's going to be interesting to see how that divestiture uh, conversation unfold and uh, and where it might lead and uh, you know I guess we'll stay tuned on that do you have any ideas as uh, how far the process is well it, it's something that we're working on every single day and so you know as these third parties are completing their evaluations and and feedback and back and forth between various third parties um, you know it, it's something that uh, it's not a short process, but but it's uh, it, it's in it's in process. Absolutely, and that's the perfect answer for a public segment because, as you know, you can't give any information out that isn't already public. And so, you know, we we get criticized that many many times. Uh, I want to know more, but at the end of the day, everyone. The cool thing about a public company, nobody gets advantaged. Everybody in terms of the shareholder in the public markets gets to find out what happens at the same time. So stay tuned to that. So we're gonna wrap up this segment and what we're gonna do is we're gonna jump into my favorite segment, which is all about mentorship when we get into Brisk's best and brightest and I'll be talking to you and I'll have Steve Wallach with me on the phone or on the Skype and uh, he'll help you with some cool mentoring tips as well. So we're gonna get started with Brisk's best and brightest you all know it's my favorite segment of the program, one that I'm super passionate about. And, you know, we're going to talk about mentorship. I'm really uh, interested in helping you, those young entrepreneurs, get started in business and, you know, maybe make a few, uh, few uh, 
less mistakes than I might have made uh, in my early career. So uh, I'm going to bring back, we've been having a really great chat with uh, Steve Wallach, the uh, CEO of Longevity International, trades on the NASDAQ, YGYI. And Steve has always spoke about mentorship. I know it's been really, really important uh, in his career. And uh, he was excited, actually, to talk about this segment. So I want to get right into it. Uh, one of the things I want to ask him, and it might be an interesting uh, question in these times, and to avoid it would just be wrong. You know, we know that Longevity has that direct selling channel with all these young entrepreneurs and millennials that are part of that channel. And in this new COVID-19 normal, what do you think it's going to take, Steve, for them to be dis- successful? And is it, does it differ in your mind uh, with this pandemic or does it not differ? I think for a lot of people, it will be different. You know, a lot of new will come out of this. Anytime there's a circumstance and this widespread and and dramatic new things come out of it, new technology, new ways of doing business, new ways of of, of even meeting together and things like that. And so uh, mentorship, I think, is a, a classic principle. I don't think that's going away. I think the way people are mentored going forward may change dramatically, though. Do you think the, uh, you know, it's a very touchy business, right? A very relationship business. Um, what type of pivots do you see maybe that might have to happen with all this social distancing to be successful within the business? I think at the end of the day, it still comes down to relationships and building relationships, establishing relationships. And, you know, I think we're all learning that technology is more useful than maybe we thought or, you know, it was this this kind of thing that we wanted to maybe avoid uh, some of us. And uh, it allows us to embrace technology that much more to still further relationships and things or establish relationships. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, obviously, where are you sitting right now? I'm sitting in our offices here in Chula Vista. Okay, and I'm sitting in Miami, so uh, and, and technology can bring us together, and then you can also broadcast that out there. So I think we're seeing that technology take place, and those that embrace it quicker, uh, I, I think you're already seeing an acceleration of, of maybe home-based opportunities. So I wanted to talk to you about this statement, and I've heard you make it before. It says it's, it's been said that the direct selling model is counter-cyclical to a good economy. Well, this is not a good economy right now. And I'm curious, do you think that statement applies within within this current crisis? I do, uh, as much as ever before. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of converging or convergence of, of things happening right now. And I, I read something the other day that uh, in terms of technology, 2020 has become the new 2030 because a lot of things that people and analysts and businesses didn't expect the general public to embrace for another 10 years. They're embracing now because necessity is the mother of invention. Isn't that interesting? Uh, you know, they've called this uh, industry's been around, I'm talking about the direct channel has been around over 100 years. Uh, but in this, uh, it's starting to evolve and it's taking on new terms. I've heard you call it the gig economy. And, uh, you know, I have, a, I have a, maybe a more cute name for it, and I like to call it a side hustle because a lot of folks are part-timer. Uh, how do you think and how important do you think a side hustle for people is going to be in this, uh, in this, in this area of pandemic that's going on now? Well, you know, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie named their production company Plan B. And so I think a a side hustle, I think uh, uh, the gig economy, I think all of those things are converging now. 
I had read long before the pandemic broke out that one in two people by 2020 would be participating in the gig economy. People, because of technology, are really learning and realizing that they can be an entrepreneur, poolside, beachside, uh, anywhere from around the world that they can access their laptop, their computer, uh, the internet. And so I think this just uh, drives it all that much uh, more home, I guess, so to speak. And and uh, in terms of uh, a side hustle, I think it's the best insurance in the world in terms of income. Yeah, I mean, that makes a ton of sense to me. Hey, Steve, I'm curious because I'd like to get into this with you a little bit. I know how hard you work. I know you're always the first guy in the office, absolutely for certain, always have been. It's one of those cores people have. They, there, there's no way you're going to knock that out of you. You're going to be there very, very early. And last week, I did an episode on gap moments. Did you happen to catch it? I did. I did. I enjoyed it very much. Okay, so what I'm curious about guy that works really, really hard as an entrepreneur has been doing this really your, your whole working life, is what do you personally do to balance work and life? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. It's a very good question. In fact, I was reflecting when I watched your your uh, segment on showing up to, the, to work. In fact, it was your segment on Gap Moments. And you have to incorporate your family and your life into your business as much as possible. And that's one of the things I love about the direct selling profession is it's fairly easy to do that. It's very easy to involve people in your business that you care about and that you want to work with. And so I think that's super important. Okay. That's so you involve them in. Do you have any passions that um, take you away, you know, kind of help you kind of like uh, take it down a notch because I, you know, when a hard driving entrepreneur, and I understand particularly trying to operate business in this kind of quote new normal, man, sometimes it's easy to forget about yourself. Are you getting lost in the business or are you able to find maybe that gap time that you can uh, kind of resurface your head into the right place? You know, I think it's important for people to recharge their batteries. And so I encourage people to take their time off and, and you know, not in just dribs and drabs. I think, you know, people like you and, and myself are, are different than maybe a lot of other people in terms of, you know, uh, cat naps and, and gap moments are adequate for most of the time. But I know, you know, you love to fish. I love to fish. I grew up in the Northwest. Uh, my father taught me to fish and uh, taught me how to fish. And so, you know, I, I love that sort of stuff. I don't get to do it enough these days, I don't think. But uh, things that uh, allow you to decompress are just taking those moments and taking that deep breath in, having a cup of coffee and just trying to clear your head. Absolutely. Well, I hope you're finding times and you're finding gap moments for yourself. Uh, it's been a very difficult time. I know our, uh, that those new graduates, you know, those new graduates that have come out in 2020, right? They've come out into this new normal, and apparently you've been watching some brisky business. Any tips for them um, uh, as they venture out into this new world where, you know, 30 million people now are unemployed? What do they need to do uh, in 30 seconds? To, to make something happen for them? I think find what you're passionate about. And you know, one of my mentors used to tell me all the time that uh, find what you love and the, the money will follow. And so find what you love, find what you're passionate about and do that. I think those are uh, that is great advice, and I agree with that as well. Steve, I want to thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks for coming along and doing all four segments. I feel really uh, proud to have you be a part of it, and uh, thank you for coming online with me. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on, Dave. 
So we're going to wrap up Risky Business right now. This is uh, the fourth episode. It was great to have our first guest, and we have a big guest list of different people coming. Uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation with all of you today, and I'll look forward to coming back to you next week as we launch Episode 5 on Risky Business. <laughs>